Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the J.D. Rucker Show. I am your host, J.D. Rucker, and today we're going to be talking about emerging existential threats. These are threats that are, well, they're coming after us. They're coming after you. They're coming after me. These are threats that are on top of the normal existential threats that we're already facing today. Uh, Okay, so these are emerging threats. We already know that, for example, the border crisis, that is an existential threat for the United States of America. And you can make the same claim that it's an existential threat for other nations as well, especially European nations that are seeing their, their, their borders deteriorate. They're seeing their, their cultures devolve into crime ridden just areas. And that's, it's not a racist statement. I want to be clear about that. Okay. People will often say that, oh, that's, if you say that the, that illegal aliens coming across the border that they represent you know, challenges or increases in crime. These are factual statements, folks. Okay. And we're seeing it at the border. We're seeing it out, away from the border here in the United States, but it's actually even worse in many ways in some European countries. They're having to make drastic changes to the way that they, they handle life. It's almost as if they're, they're, they're all now living in Democrat cities here in the United States, which are experiencing the same thing for different reasons. But I digress. We already know about those types of existential threats. We already know, for example, that the food crisis here in the United States is becoming an existential threat. I wouldn't say that's emerging necessarily. It's growing, but it's already emerged. It's already here. We're already experiencing those types of challenges when it comes to our our economy, when it comes to our ability to to take care of ourselves, to to take care of our families even. Now, the ones that I'm going to be talking about today, they're not necessarily new, but they are emerging. And by emerging, what I mean is, is that they've, they're going from the status of major problem, major concern, to now I would say that they are on the verge of being existential threats. They are going to, to challenge our ability as Americans, as people in general, our ability to even remain alive in some cases. It's a deterioration that is rapidly progressing so when i say these are emerging threats i just want to <laughs> i just want to cut off any of the negative comments that'll say oh you know that's not emerging that's been around for a long time or where have you been i get it these aren't necessarily new i've talked about them before all of them but when i say they're emerging they are in my humble opinion going from that level of major major threat to this actually could kill us if we don't stop it very very soon let's start with the first one and this one this one is one i want you guys to please pay close attention i'm going to read the parts of an article i want you to pay very close attention and it's going to be a little bit dry for probably the next two or three minutes but but there's a reason that i want you to pay attention to this it's an article that i had actually posted over at discernreport.com titled The Petrodollar System, A Shift Away from a Dominant Currency Plus Artificial Intelligence Will Soon Replace Us All, and and I'll explain that as well. According to the article, for decades, the U.S. dollar has been the dominant currency in the global oil trade, with most oil transactions being conducted in U.S. dollars, a phenomenon known as the petrodollar system. The petrodollar system was established in the 1970s as a result of an agreement between the United States and Saudi Arabia, where by the U.S. would provide military protection for the oil-rich kingdom in exchange for Saudi Arabia's agreement to price its oil exports in U.S. dollars and to recycle its surplus oil revenues back into U.S. assets. 
However, in recent years, there's been a shift away from the petrodollar system as other countries and currencies have gained more prominence in the global oil trade. The shifts can be attributed to several factors, including the rise of new oil-producing countries, the growing role of non-U.S. currencies in international trade, and the declining role of the U.S. dollar as the world's dominant currency. One of the major drivers of this shift is the economic uh, power of countries like China and Russia, which have been actively seeking to reduce their dependence on the U.S. dollar and increase their use of their own currencies in international trade. These countries have also been investing in infrastructure and making deals with other countries to facilitate the trade of oil in their own currencies, bypassing the U.S. dollar. Another factor in uh, another factor contributing to the shift away from the petrodollar system is the increasing use of digital currencies and blockchain chain technology in international trade. These new technologies have the potential to greatly reduce the dependence on traditional currencies such as the U.S. dollar in the global oil trade. Despite these changes, the U.S. dollar still remains the dominant currency in the global oil trade, and it is unlikely that it will lose its position as the primary currency in this market in the near future. However, the trend towards a more diversified global oil trade with multiple currencies being used is likely to continue. In conclusion, the shift away from the petrodollar system is a reflection of the changing economic landscape with new part players and technologies emerging and the increasing diversification of international trade. As the world moves towards a more multipolar economic order, it will be interesting to see how the role of the U.S. dollar and other currencies evolves in the global oil trade. Now, it's funny that in this particular article, it does mention the multipolar economic order, code word for liberal world order. Now, you might be wondering, well, maybe this is that that big of a deal you know we've known about this for a little while is that really an emerging uh existential threat number one i'd say yes but i have been conning you a bit with this the reading of this particular article you see this article wasn't written by me this article wasn't written by a person this article was written by artificial intelligence it was written by chat gpt now, if you were paying close, the reason that I wanted you to pay close attention was to see, does this sound like a human? Is this good enough to pass the smell test? Now, it's not a great article. That's why I asked you up front, please pay attention, even though it might be boring, because it was pr- pretty boring. But it does pass the smell test. I mean, that could be an analysis from a, from a junior uh, staffer at a national publication. It had all it checked off all the boxes. It sounded right. Now I posted this on my Substack, and a lot of people were saying, "Oh, don't they have to? You know, for artificial intelligence to work, doesn't that mean that it has to to be reading from other places?" And yes and no. Okay, yes and no. In other words, it can it can learn how to write coherently, and it has in many ways learned how to write coherently, learned how to sound human without necessarily having to refer to other subjects. It can take the data and express it in a way that sounds like an article. Existential threat number one, emerging existential threat number one, is not just the petrodollar. I'll I'll talk about the the economic threats here later. The real threat in this one, this, this first threat that I'm mentioning, is the rise of artificial intelligence. A lot of people will say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. You know, it's just technology. We've we've been able to. They were saying that that you know automation was going to kill off all the jobs, and it didn't. Well, this 
in this case, we really might see <laughs> all the jobs getting killed off and not replaced in adequate f- fashion with other jobs. The whole reason that they, the powers that be, want so much automation, want artificial intelligence to be able to handle so much of so much for us. It's not just out of so we can all live a life of, of luxury or ease. It's really so that we can live a life of dependence. If we cannot support ourselves because the jobs are taken away, we are going to have to become beholden to government or more more uh, accurately beholden to the various public private partnerships that are emerging. Quick note, <laughs> I got to throw this up there real quick. Hold on. Let me let me let me go there. Uh, uh share screen. Just a quick note. I because I was passing over this new ad they just sent this to me this morning. They introduced the new MyPillow 2.0. Guys, it's real. This it's I've got mine coming. Buy one, get one free. I got to throw it out there because they finally, after all these years of the same exact pillow going out, they finally made a new MyPillow, new MyPillow 2.0. So be sure to use promo code JDR at checkout and uh, and get you a buy one, get one free promo for these, these new pillows. As bad as artificial intelligence is regarding a, an existential threat, an emerging threat to the people of the United States, to the people of the world, really. There are actually bigger, more pressing threats. Artificial intelligence, it's it's happening, but it's still, we'll say, a little bit of ways, maybe months, maybe probably years, definitely not decades, but it's gonna it's gonna be integrated more and more into our lives. That sounds bad enough, but believe it or not, there are worse threats. One such threat, something that I've haven't been talking about nearly enough lately. It's not for any other reason. It's not that I'm avoiding the topic. It's just it's something that, number one, a lot of people are covering, so that's good. I try to focus on things that aren't getting covered nearly enough. People are talking about the LGBTQIA plus supremacy agenda. And yes, I've talked about it myself, but it hasn't really been what I would consider to be necessarily an existential threat up until very recently. You know, And call me naive, call me stupid, if you will, but I really didn't expect it to get this bad. I thought that at some point... You know, the truth would emerge. I thought that at some point, perhaps logic, maybe a little bit of science, maybe some common sense would prevail, but I've been proven wrong and wrong over and over again. <laughs> there is, there, there just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of uh, common sense or logic or, or scientific understanding amongst the, the woke people of this world. That's why this article over the Daily Signal titled Medical Group Pokes Holes in Fatally Flawed Study claiming to prove kids benefit for transgender hormones. Now, the takeaway here, before we get into the article, the takeaway here is that, what? They're actually saying there's benefits to transgender hormones? Look, if they want to say, if they want to take the 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 flawed, but still, you know, semi, I guess you could say kind perspective that, oh, you know, these kids, they really, they, they, they're unsure of, of who they are. They, they need some some guidance, you know, in the worst case scenario, we'll start talking about hormones. Okay. That's, I disagree wholeheartedly with that sentiment, but at least it makes sort of a little bit of sense if you're, if you're naive about such things, but they're not going down that road. They're trying hard to push and to indoctrinate and to brainwash children into thinking that they are not built the way that they're supposed to be built. Yeah, as I've said many times, I do believe that this is part of an agenda to go after the Bible, to go after God, because as I've said, 
you know, if they can convince a kid that, you know, if they can convince a little boy that he's actually a little girl that he was put in the wrong body, then the conclusion that he will come to in his early life, as it pertains to faith, as it pertains to the Bible, is that if God is is all knowing, is is omnipotent, um, omniscient, then that doesn't make sense because he made made me wrong. This is what this little boy might think. You know, I'm actually a girl. My mom tells me I'm a girl. The teachers tell me I'm a girl. You know, everybody's telling me that just because you know, I like playing with Barbies, I must be a girl. I don't even know if they say that anymore, but you get the idea. You know, they, they brainwash these kids, and then all of a sudden, hey, you know, hormones and surgeries and all this other stuff. And they then they permanently destroy that person. But even if, let's say, that person's able to survive all this, that early indoctrination will prevent them in many ways, will make it more challenging. I don't want to say it'll prevent them, but it will make it more challenging for them to come to the right conclusion, that the Bible is real, that the Bible is, is accurate, that they are created. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now, and the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger. Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Because again, if they think that they were created wrong, then their only conclusions would be that either God made a mistake or God doesn't exist at all. And that, to me, is really the the push. Even, and I'm not suggesting that everybody who's who's participating in this LGBTQIA plus supremacy agenda that they are all aware of this this ultimate agenda that's being pushed out into the world. But they're still participating, so that still makes them, in my books, evil. According to this article from the Daily Signal, an organization of doctors, nurses, and healthcare professionals poked holes in a study claiming to prove the marginal benefits of cross-sex hormones for teenagers who persistently identify with the gender opposite their biological sex. The group, Do No Harm, called the study fatally flawed and borderline unscientific in a report first provided to the Daily Signal. The report criticizes the study, uh, Psychosocial Functioning in Transgender Youth After Two Years of Hormones, led by Dr. Diane Chen at the Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago and published by the New England Journal of Medicine in January. The study analyzes 315 participants identified as transgender and non-binary between the ages of 12 and 20 over the course of two years. These participants received gender-affirming hormones. Gosh, I hate that phrase. The participants received gender-affirming hormones, hormones to make their male or female bodies resemble bodies of the opposite sex. And this is a quote from Chen's article. During the study period, appearance congruence Positive effect and life satisfaction increased in depression and anxiety symptoms decreased. 11 participants experienced suicidal ideation and two committed suicide. Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? <clears throat> it's, I don't even know if I want to read anymore, but we will. Yet, the, the Chen article raises several questions that weaken its overall conclusion that this form of therapy is truly beneficial to these subjects. And that's according to Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, uh, board chair at Do No Harm. Many scientific studies break uh, participants into two groups, a test group and a control group. The test group receives a drug or intervention, while the control group either receives a false version of the drug, a placebo, 
or receives a different treatment that is less experimental, such as counseling. This study did not have a control group. Well, there you have it. I mean, I shouldn't have to go any further, but I will. But there you have it. You can't have a study that says that this proves this or that without having a control control group. And that's just basic science. Anyway, uh, according to uh, Goldfarb, the absence of any control group raises the possibility that ongoing psychological counseling and therapy may explain the slight improvement in some parameters of the study. Cross-sex hormones may not have been the only factor in reported improvement, and without a control group, it becomes much harder to isolate the exact role hormones may have played. Goldfarb also noted that the fact that the subjects were seen in these clinics for some prolonged period of time prior to entry into this study may produce spurious results due to the well-known phenomenon in surveys called demand characteristics. If a survey is conducted under the auspices of a study of the study authors, the results may be influenced by a cheering on effect. In other words, what they're saying is, is that because these kids know they're participating in this gender affirming study and they're being being interviewed by the people that are participating, that are pushing gender uh, affirmation, LGBTQIA plus supremacy, well, they're going to be more likely to say, oh, yeah, no, I'm totally much happier now, doctor. Thank you so much. For, for giving me these hormones that, that are changing my body and are doing these things that are, are affecting me psychologically and physically permanently. Thank you. Oh, thank you, doctor. No, I'm not going to be one of those that kills myself as a result. This is ludicrous. Insanity. It's pervasive and growing more so here in the United States of America. After the break, we will get to the third item. We were able to make it for the through the first two in one segment. It's awesome. We'll make it to the third item right after the break. My good friend, Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, he left us way too early. I'm so sad that he is gone, uh, but his legacy does continue. We do still support his foundation. We still support his company that is still benefiting the the masses across the world. Those who have either been jabbed or maybe you've been been um, exposed to those who may be shedding on you. That's uh, becoming more and more likely as being the case. The more times you're jabbed, the worse off you are, and the more you're likely to shed on others. Now, even if you've never been jabbed, you're not around other people very often, you should still consider getting Z-Detox or Z-Stack Life Protocol, either one. Both of them will help your immune system. It's been demonstrated by scientists, demonstrated by doctors, including Dr. Zev Zelenko. So go to zstacklife.com slash freedom. That's zstacklife.com slash freedom and get Z-Detox or Z-Stack Life Protocol today. Anybody who thought that uh, maybe this show was going to be a short version since I was able to make it through two out of five on my list in one segment, think again, because going forward, everything else is going to be a lot more detailed. All three of the final final three uh, emerging existential threats are going to take at least a segment, if not two, to cover them. The reason being is that these, hell, they're important. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. These are just... Uh, Things aren't looking very good in this realm. Now, it would be crazy if I were to do a show about existential threats and not talk about COVID-19, the vaccines, various pandemics, the uh, the rise of pandemic panic theater 2.0. Um, but I'm going to be talking about it from a different perspective. We already know 
you know, it's, it's always been an existential threat from a freedom perspective, as well as a medical perspective. If you are like me, if you believe that the quote unquote vaccines are extraordinarily dangerous, then uh, obviously, you know, we have to take that into account and understand that that uh, that in itself poses an existential threat. But it's actually worse than that. This is about a control agenda on top of depopulation. If we're assuming that the vaccines are going to kill a lot of people, and I hate to assume that because that's, that's but I mean, it's happening. It seems to be happening already, and they're still pushing for more and more vaccines. So we can only assume that there is going to be a toll to the human race, the, the numbers of humans that are still alive. Again, it goes back to depopulation, but we also have to look at the control factor and what this represents. So, number one, it starts off with fear monitoring. So let's just cut straight to to this uh, article over at shtfplan.com by Max Slavo. World Health Organization says nine viruses have pandemic potential. Now, again, before I even get into this, and I'm, you'll understand once I start reading it, before I even get into this, the key here is not the, the, the new nine viruses, okay? That's not the takeaway here. It's the fact that the World Health Organization and the CDC and the Biden-Harris regime and and all the powers that be, they're all still pushing for more fear. Fear has subsided for the most part in the United States and across the globe. People just aren't as scared of COVID-19 as they were this time last year. Even this attempt to take, uh, what is it, uh, XBB.1.5 and make that a thing, they were calling the Kraken variant in the UK. It's, it's supposed to be so bad, and yet that really didn't get people juiced up. Still not out there trying to, oh my gosh, we're we're going to die from COVID. You know, it's only got a 99.9993% uh, recovery rate for people under the age of 40. Oh, crap. Anyway, keep that in mind as I read this article or parts of this article. The World Health Organization keeps a list of viruses and bacteria with, quote, pandemic potential. These nine pathogens are the ones most likely to infect humans and become pandemics. Jill Weather, head of Baylor College of Medicine, says prioritizing these diseases is generally based on two factors, their ability to spread and the ability of humans to treat them. A revised list is likely coming within the next few months. Which one of the <laughs> the uh, releases choose <laughs> determine? <laughs> oh, I love, I love Max Levo. Uh, yeah, if you're listening on audio, I'm not uh, failing at English. It's just, it's uh, whatever. You'll understand when I read it. The one, uh, which one will the uh, blank determine to be the next major pandemic for which we need to obey, comply, and be totally controlled by a ruling class to prevent? Which one will require forced vaccination? Which one of these actually do real-world harm instead of uh, just giving people a cold? Time will tell. Let's be aware of what is on the radar, at least, so we can adequately prepare when they decide which one of these will be the one. Pay attention to the short video, but no, I'm not going to play that. Um, so they're talking about the Nipah virus, the uh, uh, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. Now, that does sound scary. Uh, <laughs> that sounds bad. Lassa fever, we already know that's bad. Rift Valley fever, which is carried by mosquitoes. Zika, which is also carried by mosquitoes. Ebola and Marburg virus. Gosh, these are actually pretty bad ones. And, of course, MERS, um, which you can you can get it from camels. So be careful. If you see any camels, they might be carrying MERS. SARS, of course, uh, and then disease X. I'm going to read about disease X. 
The WHO says it does not rank diseases in any order of potential threat, but it acknowledges the possibility that an as-yet-unknown disease could cause a serious pandemic. In her work with the bat virus, for example, Raina Plowright of Cornell University said, says that even the, that the small proportion of bat species that have been studied, the animals carry thousands of viruses, end quote, and we have no clue how many present risks. We don't have the technology to take a sequence and say with certainty whether it can infect humans or can transmit from human to human. We're blind, really. That's not good. Not to mention that uh, variants pose threats. She says just the tiniest genetic change can be pro- can have a profound effect. What if we had uh, a pathogen with a 50% fatality rate that transmitted efficiently? Again, I can't be more clear about this. I don't think I can. This is fear-mongering. And I'm not saying that the SHTF plant is doing the fear-mongering here. They're just reporting on the news. This is the WHO that's doing the fear-mongering. They're, they're preparing us for something. For something. For something. What is that something? And this is where we get into the existential threat, which I've covered before. And, uh, and I think it's important that we continue to cover it because it is that big of a deal. I am, of course, talking about the World Health Organization and the, the Pandemic Treaty 2.0. This is from Brownstone Institute. Amendments to WHO's International Health Regulations and Annotated Guide. And uh, I'm going to read through this briefly because it is it is pretty important that we understand. You know, there was this, this rumor, I guess, back in like June or July of last year that the pandemic treaty had been been quashed. It had been stopped. And Joe Biden got owned and, and the World Health Organization got owned and Fauci got owned. And everybody's just it's getting owned, right? It's, oh, yay, victory, victory, except it's coming back. And as we said back then. It was never stopped. They don't. They don't take something they really want and just say, "Oh well, I guess we'll just just have to give up on that." They just put it on the down low, work on it behind the scenes, and then re-engage with it when they hope nobody is looking. So, according to this article, the COVID skeptic world has been claiming the World Health Organization plans to become some sort of global autocratic government, removing national sovereignty and replacing it with a totalitarian health state. The near-complete absence of interest by mainstream media would suggest to the rational observer that this is yet another, quote, conspiracy theory from a disaffected fringe. The imposition of authoritarian rules on a global scale would normally attract attention. The WHO is fairly transparent in its machinations. It should therefore be straightforward to determine whether this is all misplaced hysteria or an attempt to implement an existential change in sovereign rights and international relations. We would just need to read the document. Firstly, it is useful to put the amendments in context. And then um, they're going through who's the who and yada, 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 who's new pandemic preparedness. Uh, I forgot. No, I'm not reading that part. Um, here we go. Major amendments proposed for the IHR. The amendments to the IHR are intended to fundamentally change the relationship between individuals, their country's governments, and the WHO. They place the WHO as having rights overriding that of individuals, erasing the basic principles developed after World War II regarding human rights and the sovereignty of states. In doing so, they signal a return to a uh, colonialist and feudalist approach fundamentally different to that which, uh, to which people uh, in relatively democratic countries have been accustomed. The lack of major pushback by politicians and the lack of concern in the media and consequent ignorance of the general public is therefore both strange and alarming. Aspects of the amendment involved involving the largest changes 
to the workings of society and international relations are discussed below. Follow those. Following those are annotated ex- extracts from the WHO document. Uh, provided in the WHO website, it is currently under a process of revision to address uh, obvious grammatical errors and improve clarity. Hmm. Crazy stuff, right? And uh, next segment, uh, resetting international human rights to a former authoritarian model. The Universal Declaration on Human Rights agreed by the the UN in the aftermath of World War II and in the context of much of the world emerging from a colonialist yoke is predicated on the concept that all humans are born with equal and inalienable rights gained by the simple fact that they are born. In 1948, or in 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was intended to codify these to prevent a return to inequality and totalitarian rule. The equality of all individuals is expressed in Article 79, which reads, All are equal before the law and are entitled without any discrimination to equal protection of the law. All are entitled to equal protection against any discrimination in violation of this declaration and against any incitement to such discrimination. This understanding uh, underpins the WHO Constitution and forms a basis for the modern international human rights movement and international human rights law. Okay, we got all that, right? Here's where we get a little bit crazy. The proposed IHR amendment reversed these understandings. The WHO proposes proposes that the term with full respect for the dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of persons be deleted from the text replaced with I'm not, I'm not kidding here. Equity, coherence, inclusivity, vague terms, the application of which are then specifically differentiated in the text according to a level of social and economic development. The underlying equality of individuals is removed and rights become subject to a status determined by others based on a set of criteria that they define. This entirely upends the prior understanding of the relationship of all individuals with authority, at least in non-totalitarian states. It is a totalitarian approach to society, within which individuals may act only on the sufferance of others who wield power outside of legal sanctions, specifically a feudal relationship or one of monarch-subject, monarch-subject without an intervening constitution. It is difficult to imagine a greater issue facing society, yet the media that is calling for reparations for past slavery is silent on a proposed international agreement consistent with its reimposition. This authority, and this is titled, this uh, section is titled Giving WHO Authority Over Member States. This authority is seen as being above states with a specific definition of recommendations being changed from non-binding to binding by a specific statement that states will undertake to follow recommendations of the WHO. States will accept the WHO as the authority in international public health emergencies, elevating it above their own ministries of health. Much hinges on what a health emergency international concern is and who defines it. As explained below, these amendments will widen the PHEIC definition to include any health event that a particular individual in Geneva uh, personally deems to be of actual or potential concern. That particular individual is the Director General of the WHO, currently Tedros. Powers to be ceded by national governments to the DG include quite specific examples that may require changes within national legal systems. These include detentions of individuals, restrictions of travel, the forcing of health interventions, and requirements to undergo medical examinations. 
Unsurprising to observers of the COVID-19 response, these proposed restrictions on individual rights under the DG's discretion include freedom of speech. WHO will have the power to designate opinions or information as misinformation or disinformation and require country governments to intervene and stop such expression and dissemination. This will likely run up against some national constitutions, including us, the American, the U.S. Constitution, but will be a boon to many dictators and one-party regimes. It is, of course, incompatible with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but these seem to no longer to be guiding principles for the WHO. After self-declaring an emergency, the, the DG will have uh, power to instruct governments to provide WHO and other countries with resources, funds, and commodities. This will include direct intervention in manufacturing, increasing production of certain commodities uh, manufactured within their borders. In other words, they'll be able to tell the United States that we got to give give our money and our stuff and, and everything we need from a, from a very neo-Marxist perspective that we'll need to take all that money and give it to Thailand or whoever. Countries will cede power to the WHO over patent law and intellectual property, including control of manufacturing know-how of commodities deemed by the DG to be relevant to the potential or actual health problem that he or she has deemed of interest. This intellectual property and manufacturing know-how may be then passed to commercial rivals at the DG's discretion. These provisions seem to reflect a degree of stupidity, and unlike the basic removal of fundamental human rights, vested interests here may well insist on their removal from the IHR draft. Rights of people should be, of course, uh, should, of course, be paramount. With most media absent from the fray, is it is difficult to see a level of advocacy being equal. I think I have time for this next section, which is also important. I'm trying to get this wrapped up before the end of the segment. Providing the WHO DG with unfettered power and ensuring it will be used. The WHO has previously developed processes that ensure at least a semblance of consensus and evidence base in decision-making. Their process for developing guidelines requires at least one paper, a range of expertise to be sought and documented, and a range of evidence weighed for liability. 2019 guidelines on management of pandemic influenza are an example, laying out recommendations for countries in the event of such a respiratory virus outbreak. Weighing this evidence resulted in the WHO strongly recommending against contact tracing, quarantine of healthy people, and border closures as the evidence has shown that these are expected to cause more overall harm to health in the long term than the benefit gained, if any, from slowing spread of virus. These guidelines were ignored when an emergency was declared for COVID-19 and authorities switched to an individual, the Director General, the DG. Now, again, I cannot be more clear about this. If you still believe that the pandemic treaty is dead, then you're probably watching Fox News. You're probably getting your information from Washington Examiner or some of these so-called right-leaning sites that actually actually don't lean right. They just pretend to. At least on most issues. There are issues where they, they will lean right. Okay? That's that's how they're able to get, get by with it. They pick the safe issues, the issues that are that are unambiguous. And they take those issues and they pretend to be conservative, but they're not. But it's not just them, unfortunately. Even some of the good guys, many of the good publications out there are ignoring this. This is an existential threat. I should have probably moved this to number two. I I made a mistake by not pushing this up higher on the list. Or down lower? No. 
up higher on the list. Because I would actually say that of all the threats that we're facing, next to the final one, which we'll get to later, but of all the threats that we're facing, this is one that could take us out very quickly. And I'm not just talking about like a collapse or whatever. I'm talking about this could essentially make the United States of America cease to exist. And nobody's talking about it. Not nearly enough. I'm going to do a whole show on this, but not today. After the break, we're going to get to the second biggest, in my humble opinion, the second biggest threat. So stay tuned. Folks, the majority of our pharmaceuticals, the ingredients in them, come from China. They are controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. We're already seeing supply chain issues. Pharmacies are running low on a lot of things. And if the crap hits the fan, as a lot of us think it may in the very near future, you will want antibiotics. And the best way to get that is to go to jdrucker.com slash meds. You'll be able to get a teleconference with an actual doctor. And then they'll send you meds. They'll send you like five different versions or types of antibiotics for the different ailments that could that could hit us. These are great for long-term storage. You will you will want them. And it's one of those things where if you if you need them, then you'll want them. If you don't need them, then at least you'll have them. So, and here's the thing: if you don't have them, you're almost certainly going to need them at least sometime in the near future. So, jdrucker.com/meds. Somebody had asked during the break, yeah, how do I define what is an emerging existential threat? Well, number one, by emerging, I mean that this time last year, or any time last year, it wasn't considered to be, you know, to, to fit into the criteria. It was a major threat, but it wasn't necessarily an existential threat. Like I said before, I consider, for example, the vaccines, COVID-19 vaccines, to be existential threats that, that have been, you know, they were existential threats from the beginning okay so so that's not emerging that's already established makes sense um you know, food food shortages that's been growing for a while this has been you know really since since uh covid began we started seeing a little bit of it but it wasn't until the biden harris regime what seems to be a concerted effort to sabotage our our food supply to for somebody to control it you know that has been the case for now, while so I wouldn't say that's emerging, we're in process. When I'm looking at these emerging existential threats, I'm looking at things that were threats before, in many cases, well, in all cases, but that have accelerated now, that are excel- in the process of accelerating even further. And I look at it based upon three criteria. Number one, is it imminent? Okay, is this something something that can happen? You know, very soon, within 2023, no later than, say, 2024, okay? So, so imminent threat. Number two, is it likely, you know, we could say, for example, that, um, you know, something so really severe, a true existential threat like like a meteor, a very large meteor hitting the earth and causing mass destruction, you know, a world-ending event, is that, will that end the world? Sure. Is it likely? 
doesn't seem to be. Just saying, you know, maybe maybe some of you astronomers out there might see something that I haven't heard about. Maybe they already know that Armageddon Rock, you know, is is on its way, and they're already trying to put Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck in a in a rocket ship or something like that. I don't know, but that one is is real, but it's not it's not likely. At least we hope it's not. And then the third criteria is that it has to be severe enough to to qualify as true existential threats. We, we hear about them all the time, and it's, it's actually an abused term, in especially in conservative media, well, really alternative media. They're, oh, everything's an existential threat. Okay, I look at it as it has to actually be existential. Can this change the face of humanity, or could it even change the existence of the United States of America? And that last part there, changing the the existence of our nation, that's what drives me to make the number two rising, uh, emerging existential threat, the threat of economic collapse. Now, those who listened to me last year, you know, or if you've been listening to me for a while, I used to be, I was of the opinion that a full-blown economic collapse was 5 to 10%. Okay? Now we've entered into the realm where I think it's more and more likely we are going to have some variation of economic collapse. And when I say variation, what I mean is, is that it will be the type of collapse that will suddenly be fixed with central bank digital currencies, with a digital dollar. There's, there's going to be a whole lot of suffering and a whole lot of everything else that happens between now and then. We can look at what they're trying to do. You know, one of the things that a lot of people have said, you know what, this we can we can protect ourselves by using cryptocurrency, decentralized currencies. Instead of a centralized digital currency controlled by government and public-private partnerships with economic or financial institutions across the globe, eventually consolidating into a single one, what if we just, you know, we've already got cryptocurrencies, they're already doing okay, or they're looking to be doing better, even though they had a terrible, I would say, manufactured to be terrible, uh, 2022, but now it seems like maybe maybe they, they can fix that. Well, the government has ideas for that. It's an article over at uh, Natural News by Ramon Tomey. White House calls for regulators to bolster oversight of cryptocurrencies. Now, you might think that we, we're way off on this one. Okay, but this one is, is there's bipartisan support for the idea of, of regulating cryptocurrencies. This could very easily happen. And with the White House calling for it, they've got, they've got uh, essentially a year and a half to try to make it happen. I think they're going to, to get there. I really do. According to the article, briefly, the White House called for regulators to bolster oversight of cryptocurrencies, warning of the dangers that come with the burgeoning sector. Four White House officials, um, including National Economic Council Director Brian Deese, and for those who don't know who Brian Deese is, oh, I don't even know if I have time to, to talk about him. It's funny because he's the one on this list that includes Jake Sullivan, by the way, who's also a very bad guy. But Brian Deese is the one that concerns me the most because this guy... This is former BlackRock. You've heard of ESG, which I'm about to talk about. Okay. Brian Deese ran the ESG department for BlackRock before joining the Biden-Harris regime. And before he was with BlackRock, he was with the Obama regime. Crazy how this all works out. Here's a quote um, from a, a uh, blog post that, that they had an entry that was outlined, um, that also outlined the executive branch's plan to mitigate the risk that comes with crypto. According to this, this post, 
While cryptocurrency might be relatively new, the behavior we have seen some crypto companies exhibit and the risks posed by this behavior are not. As an administration, our focus is on continuing to ensure that crypto cannot undermine financial stability to protect investors and to hold bad actors accountable. Now, that's obviously double talk because the, I would argue that FTX and the whole uh, Sam Bankman freed debacle and that everything that has been happening with Bitcoin and all the other things, these are, again, manufactured. I have no evidence. It's just speculation, but it sure seems to tie into the whole lot of bad things that are happening in the world today, <laughs> especially with the own, our own government here in the United States of America. What is their end goal? Well, for that, I turn to Daisy Luther. And when I say end goal, it's not necessarily their end goal. It's a step, but it's a step towards a one world currency, which is what they really want, because that's part of part of the agenda. This is an article over at theorganicprepper.com by Daisy Luther, titled, What are CBDCs? Here's what the central banks have planned for you. And, I'm, and I know that you guys, if you've been watching the show for a while, you're very familiar with the digital dollar and central bank digital currencies. But just for everybody else, we're going to go ahead and just go over this briefly. An acronym that has been recently tossed around in an ominous whisper is CBDC. What is it and how does it affect you? CBDC stands for Central Bank Digital Currency, and these are digital versions of a country's currency. We've talked a lot about it here at the Organic Prepper about digital currencies and the dangers of a cashless society. And if the WEF has its way, we could be looking at just that. And soon, the governments of the world are hard at work creating tunnels and secret routes that all lead to one place, a one-world monetary system. This is all part of the Great Reset they've been touting. And the subheadline here, the central bank has a plan to implement digital currencies in the near future. As always, it will be positioned as something beneficial to get the less critical thinkers on board first. Then, at some point, it could be the only legal tender that exists. And this will give the powers that be the ability to completely control every financial decision you make. Uh, there's no other way to put it. It is. That's exactly what they're trying to do. And they're trying to do it for, for more than just the reason we know about. Let me clarify that. It's not just about control. We might say, oh, that's the, the big one there. But it's not just about control. It's also about coaxing the markets because they can control the people or they can at least try to control a free people that cannot be controlled, but they can try to control us, which means that they might take it to the extreme. And when I say might, if they really want to, they will. And that's what we have to fight back. But, but we'll talk about that at another time. But there's another part to it. There is the coaxing. Coaxing of powerful players, powerful individuals, powerful companies, and trying to get them involved in the part of their scheme that will, in my humble opinion, finance the the end times so to speak if we are in the biblical end times this will be where they get the the money to to, to fight it. and of course yes they're going through blackrock state street vanguard all the baddies in asset management of course they're also going through the world economic forum the united nations the council for inclusive capitalism and of course our own white house at least the current iteration of it but it, like i said part of what they're where they're heading is towards this this esg environment Social governance. This article over at uh, the Daily Signal, Samantha by Samantha. Oh boy, I'm going to butcher this one. Is Chirdis? Hmm, I don't know. <laughs> Titled ESG is terrifying, problematic concept in investing. Author and, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy explains why. And for those who don't know, 
you know, Vivek Ramaswamy is somebody that you do need to to learn about, listen to. And, um, you know, they did a podcast. I'm just going to read the opening portion of it because we I've got a guest coming on. I'm trying to get through this as quickly as possible so we, we can get to the guest as soon as he gets here. Uh, conservatives have been sounding the alarm over the use of environmental, social, and governance policies as they relate to investments, particularly for private and public pension funds. But what exactly is ESG? According to Vivek Ramaswamy, co-founder of Strive Asset Management, ESG refers to the use of dollars, including your dollars, to advance environmental or social goals in addition to what they'll call governance goals that are not implemented through public policymaking, through elections, or through democracy. Rather, they are implemented through the economy instead, largely by buying shares in companies and then forcing those companies to behave in a certain way. That's what it is. Woke Inc. is is the book that he had authored, Inside America's Corporate Social Justice Scam. And then, of course, he has this this, uh, uh, interview that he did with with, uh, The Daily Signal. I'll leave a link to it because it's it's actually a good one. I think it's let's see how long is it. It does not say it, it wasn't too long. You you should watch that uh, or listen to it. Sorry, podcast. Listen to it. So used to video. Anyway, point is is this. Now we're going to get into the meat of it. The guest that I have coming on is you. If you've been listening to my show, you're probably familiar with him. His name is Ira Bershatsky. Now I've been called told anytime I bring these gold guys on. You know, oh, this is an infomercial. This is not an infomercial. This is important stuff, especially as they're pushing, they being financial advisors, they're pushing for ESG funds. A lot of a lot of people don't realize. They might say, oh, you know what? It's okay. I just won't invest in ESG funds, right? Well, if you have your retirement, for example, or any of your wealth tied up with these financial advisors, and I'm not ripping on financial advisors. But there's a, here's the thing, and as I noted back in November, the Biden-Harris regime has initiated rules that will incentivize financial advisors to put your money into ESG funds even if it loses money for you. The financial advisor will make money. You will lose money. That's how this is working. That's why it's so important to really reconsider, to take control of your wealth, your retirement. And the easiest way to do it in this economy, in my humble opinion, is through gold or silver, precious metals in general. That's why I have Ira coming on. Should have been here already. I'm going to have to to ping him here if he if he's not here in a minute. He's probably on the line with a customer. That's what what happened last time I had him on. And for those who think, oh, you know what, it's we'll we'll get around this, or we're not going to have to worry about it too much. I turned to an article that was actually. It's almost a week old. I've been sitting on this one for a while because I wanted to wait until I had um, Ira on to be able to discuss it because it is that important. This article from the Epoch Times, written by Caden Pearson, 25 states sue Biden administration over rule following 401k managers to put savings into ESG funds. I'm sorry, allowing 401k managers and not just allowing, incentivizing. Let's be clear about that. From the article, a coalition of 25 states is suing the Biden administration over a Department of Labor rule that affects millions of retirement accounts, millions of retirement accounts, including possibly yours. The attorney general of multiple states involved in the lawsuit announced on Wednesday, this is last week, the new rule set to take effect on January 30th, so it's already in effect, allows 401k managers to invest clients' money in environmental, social, and government funds, a move that 
25 states argue violates the Employment Retirement Income Securities Act of 1974. According to the lawsuit, the rule puts at risk the retirement savings accounts of 152 million workers. Are you among them? Hmm. Or two-thirds of the U.S. population, totaling $12 trillion in assets in the name of promoting the Biden administration's climate agenda. It does this, the states argue, by making changes to the rule that authorizes fund managers, fiduciaries, to consider and promote non-pecuniary benefits, in other words, benefits not related to money or financial gain, when making investment decisions. This is all big words and fancy talk for, hey, why don't you put money into environmental programs or companies that are that are supporting environmental programs, these ESG companies don't take into consideration how much money they're going to lose for your clients because we're going to take care of you, we being the Biden-Harris regime. We're going to make sure that you make money even if you lose money for them because the environment needs your help. That's essentially what they're saying. So I'm not, this is, to, for those who will come out and say, oh, this is an infomercial, you know, me interviewing Ira, I'm I'm interviewing Ira and strongly recommending physical precious metals because I truly believe in them. I truly do. Oh, sorry. I, and I know I shouldn't get passionate about this, but again, folks, this is an existential threat. There's no other way to put it. Th- what they're trying to do right now with the economy, with, with your money, with my money, what they're trying to do is they're trying to back us into a corner so they can force the rollout of not only the digital dollar and eventually the digital whatever they're going to call the one world currency. And it's not just for that, but again, it's also so they can fund their their liberal world order agenda. I said earlier, they don't care about money. This is why they don't care about money. Okay. When I I said before, I was, I was talking about how, how, you know, they, they incentivize the middle manager. They incentivize other people with high profits, right? But that's not their concern. They being the liberal world order, the people, they have BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, all under their belts. They have money coming from everywhere. And this is how they can control not just the money, but the corporations that employ the people. They're going to try to get us from every single angle. That's why. I mean, I, I laugh, but there's nothing funny about this. It's 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 an uncomfortable laughter of sadness and concern because I know so many people out there are not thinking along the lines of getting gold and silver. Maybe you, you don't have the means, and I understand that, and I feel bad for you. You know, and, and there's other things that you can do. This is why I have latepepper.substack.com to try to help people, especially those who don't have the means to go buy a $30,000 bunker and, and do $100,000 worth of renovations to prepare for the apocalypse or whatever. Not all of us can do that. I can't do it. Okay. But for those who can, my goodness, now's the time to get into physical precious metals. I better ping Ira because, again, he was supposed to be here before the break. Now we're up to break time. So I'm going to take a break. And I'm going to ping out, and hopefully he will be able to come on. Because if not, I'm going to have to keep talking by myself, and nobody wants that. So stay tuned. <laughs> hey, folks. I am super, super excited to announce my Pillow 2.0, brand new, brand new technology. Patented technology by Mike Lindell and his MyPillow cronies. They are bringing it out. The, the filming of the commercial 
not the commercial itself, the behind the scenes filming. I'm about to play that for you. Um, but yeah, just this is amazing. I'm super excited. I already ordered two because, of course, I use promo code NOQ. That's November Oscar Quebec. I use promo code NOQ to get it, and I got buy one, get one free. You can go to MyPillow.com and get yours now. Brand new temperature regulating technology to keep you comfortable throughout the night, all sorts of stuff. And, of course, it's made in the USA. So let's turn it over to Mike Lindell, promo code NOQ. Don't forget. Welcome to the MyPillow 2.0 commercial. Miss makeup. Well, you look good. And action. You're sleeping even better. We've got the best pillow ever. My pillow 2.0. He's a great name for it, huh? Cut. We got it. Welcome to the set of the MyPillow 2.0, the most amazing pillow in history. That new technology is still the MyPillow's patented fill. And now we have new technology we didn't have back when I invented MyPillow that's going to help you sleep. It's absolutely amazing, and you're the first ones that can check it out. Go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code on your screen, and we brought back the buy one, get one free. For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit MyPillow.com. You know, it's kind of funny that I get I get asked so often by listeners, by readers on my various sites, I get asked a lot to talk about uh, more about the economy, not just the U.S. economy, but the, the potential for economic collapse. Talk about central bank digital currencies, the digital dollar. Talk about cryptocurrencies, precious metals. Talk about the stock market. Talk about all these various things that are affecting us. It is quite humorous because I am not a a financial advisor. I am not somebody who is particularly well-versed when it comes to this kind of stuff. Thankfully, I do know very good people who are very well-versed, and one of them is just joining me right now, as a matter of fact. Let me go ahead and bring him on. Ira Bershatsky, how are you doing, my friend? Uh, hi, J.D. Always a pleasure to be on your show. <laughs> Always a pleasure to have you here. Um, it's funny because I was you know, going and I thought, oh, well, he might be running a little bit late, so let me go ahead and get started. And then, thankfully, you came on just in time to save me from having to say, you know what? I'm really not a financial guy. I don't know a whole lot about the economy or anything, but but I do read a lot, so there's that. You, on the other hand, you are a financial guy. You've been doing doing this for a long time. Why don't you introduce yourself to to my viewers? Uh, well, I'm Ira Brashovsky, and... Uh... Got uh, 43 years overall financial world experience, uh, three decades. I was an institutional equities trader and um, compliance officer and uh, got into precious metals eight years or so ago, started my own company, Advisor Metals, about uh, three years ago. And I'm also registered with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. I've been since 1991. And as far as I know, no one else in this physical precious metals uh, industry has that registration. And that means that everything I tell people has to be factual. There's no bait and switch. There's got to be fair dealing, uh, et cetera. So it's not the Wild West when people talk with me. It's more coming from a 
regulated perspective. Well, that's good. We don't want the Wild West, at least not when it comes to the economy, not when it comes to our personal finances. And people can find you at OurGoldGuy.com, OurGoldGuy.com. So you weren't here. Uh, You you literally are just coming on and all of a sudden I'm throwing you on the air. So I appreciate your (laughs) flexibility with that. We were just talking about uh, the various challenges that we're having with with everything that's that's happening in this world, you know, um, but as as it pertains to finances, one thing in particular that I wanted to get your perspective on. I don't know how familiar you are with the uh, with the the push to incentivize financial advisors uh, to push their their clients, push push you guys, push the people into investing into woke ESG funds, even if it's going to cost them money. Uh, well, number one, are you familiar with that? And if you are, then uh, then what do you think about that? Uh, I am familiar with it, and it's just terrible. It, it's just a, a horrible thing. It's uh, promoting the the woke, uh, you know, climate um, hysteria agenda. And always, I mean, since 1974, when the ERISA law came out, financial advisors are supposed to do what's best for for their for their clients. And this is the opposite of that. I'm surprised it's it's even getting through. But of course, with the Biden agenda, I'm not surprised that that it is uh, being pushed through. And uh, from what I've read, the ESG funds or the ESG investments actually have a lower rate of return uh, than the non-ESG investments. Uh, so that's very significant. So in the old days, it was you know the advisors had to look out for their customers. Now the advisors are looking out for ESG and, and the federal government. It is a sad statement, and it's so true that in today's world, you know, especially as bad as the economy is, that you know, we have a government that's pushing financial advisors to literally advise against what's best for mm-hmm. for their own clients. Now, you know, you are for for complete transparency. Ira has been a sponsor of this show for for a very long time. Um, yeah, we're very blessed to have him. Have his expertise as well as his his ability to to work with with my listeners, my viewers, to secure physical precious metals, and that's one thing that you've always told me. You know, you've you've always been against various forms of, I guess you could say, gold and silver investing. But there's a particular type that you very specifically like when it comes to physical precious metals. Tell us why. Just give us a brief overview why you press so hard for physical. Uh, well, physical is, um, it's not on a server and it, it's actually, you touch it, you feel it. And, um, even if it's in a retirement account vehicle and it has to be stored at a third party depository by IRS rule, rules, it's actually the physical tangible metal itself. And, um, what I tell people is they go, Oh, well, I can get an ETF or something. I said, sure. And then, um, hopefully we don't have it, but if we have another 911, when the stock market's closed for four days, have fun trying to get your money. You won't be able to. So that's one of the advantages. And, and, and physical metals aren't ESG, right? <laughs> you know, they're, they're the anti-ESG. Yes, they are. Um, they are unwoke. And it's funny because a lot of these, these central banks, a lot of these companies that are pressing for, for regular everyday people to invest in ESG funds, they're out there buying what are they buying? A bunch of precious metals. <laughs> They're buying gold uh, more so now than 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 really any time in the past. 
one of the things that people are very concerned about, it's not just, you know, their day to day. It's not just about having having gold and silver in their safe. A lot of them are been have been really focused on their retirement. And we're seeing our retirement accounts dwindle greatly. You know, we get our, our statements and for really ever since Trump Trump was forced out of office, we've been seeing this 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 trend of of you know, losing wealth, losing retirement. A lot of people are switching to uh to precious metals retirement accounts, which obviously you can do, but then there's the concern. Everybody has this concern about, oh, you know, what if I need to to get a hold of that money? You know, how hard is it going to be to to get it? And you know, who's gonna who's gonna help me? What what do you say about that, sir? Precious metals are as close to liquidity uh, to cash as as anything out there. If you have a uh, a home, you want to sell the home, it's thirty day escrow, and and who knows what else is going on. But metals can be liquidated uh, very easily. And if you have it in a retirement account, um, you work with your precious metals IRA uh, custodian. And when you liquidate, you know, it's a distribution. So like anything else, and you can either actually get the metals themselves. And a lot of people don't know that when I tell them, say, okay, if you have a distribution and uh, you want the metals, you can get the metals delivered to your home. Uh, A lot of people don't know that. Or um, you can order them to liquidate metals, and then they would contact uh, me, and I would arrange for that liquidation, and then the cash would go into your account at the Precious uh, Metals uh, self-directed IRA custodian, and then it either sits there, or you can say, you know, send them a check or a wire or or however it works. But very liquid, and the process is really very simple. It does sound simple, but you... It sounds like so they they buy the the precious metals from you. They put into you you help them get into a uh, into a gold IRA. They go back to you to liquidate it. Are you are you double dipping? <laughs> no, if if you're talking about any sort of fee, no, uh, I don't double dip. You know my um, you know other companies may do that. I, it's not my policy. It's an accommodation. Um, so I, I only dip once. <laughs> don't 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 dip twice. I know there's something in there, either religious or something, about dipping twice, but <laughs> I only dip once. <laughs> or maybe it has to do with uh, uh, donuts or something in coffee. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> there we go. Ira Bershatsky, the the single dipper. My final question for you, sir. So we've heard I, gold. You know, I looked today. Gold and silver actually did take a t- took a little hit earlier today. It's been on the rise a lot lately. Um, there's the Russia factor that has been you know, prompting a lot of people to think that's why the central banks are buying up so much gold. They think that Russia is going to force the price of gold to go up, um, which I think that probably makes a lot of sense. But you don't actually look at it as, as uh, you know, I guess, a, a way to make money, do you? Or, or do you? Is this, is this just for protecting your wealth? Or is there a potential that, that gold or silver or both could actually do very, very well in 2023 or beyond? Uh, there is that that potential, you know, always. But it, gold, silver, especially gold, is a hedge. It, historically, when the Dow Jones goes down or any stock indices go down, the dollar goes down, uh, the metals go up. I mean, that's just the way it's been. And, and you can take any time frame. I, I take the year 2000 uh, as a, the dot-com boom. And between then and now, 22 years, the Dow Jones has doubled. The S&P's doubled. Wow, that's really good, right? It's doubled. Gold's up four and a half, almost five times during the same time period. And during periods like 
in 2008 when the, the stock market had that tumble 40% or so. Between 2008 and 2011, gold and silver each doubled and, and doing what it's supposed to do. And um, I don't like to use the word Goldilocks so much, but uh, between 2016 and 2020, when, when President Trump w- w- was in office, the stock market went up, but gold and silver went up. Gold went up during that time period. So you had the hedge. Plus, when you're talking about making money, there's that potential there. So even if gold stays the same in price, but the stock market drops or the dollar drops, you're ahead. And, and it's better than keeping the, the money in the, in the bank, getting a half percent interest, because with 7 8% inflation, you're losing that much every year. So historically, gold has uh, proven itself uh, over time. Well, that's good. Nice. I, said, I know I said that was my last question, but I do have one actual. You, you prompted you prompted a further question um, mm-hmm. out of that. So, is there? And and thank you, by the way. I, I hope that that the audience notes. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever you and I hate to say it, but listen, I listen to a lot of a lot of economists. I listen to a lot of people that are selling precious metals. You know, I just gave Ira a trap question. Oh, you know, so so you're going to make a ton of money off gold, and you know, you ask that to anybody else, and they're going to, oh my gosh. Gold's going to be three grand within within a few days or whatever. You know, if you don't get it now, it's going to be you're going to so regret. Ira's not; he's just a truth teller. Okay, that's why I like working with him. He just tells it how it is. He deals with you. You know, you deal with the with the uh, owner of the company when you deal when you go to ourgoldguy.com, fill out a form, and uh, Ira will call you directly. So that's one of the reasons that we strongly recommend him. So my real final question for you, sir, is you know, knowing what you know, I want you to speculate a bit. The central banks are buying up um, tons of gold. They, they continue to do that. China has been buying up a ton of gold. What do they know that we don't know, or maybe you know, maybe nobody knows? But what, what's the what are they thinking? What's the deal here with with all the big big players trying to corner the market on gold? Well, what um, I'm also a technical analyst, and I've been looking at the charts for decades. And price tells you everything. So they're buying up the, the gold. That's fine. That's going to be in the price. And what's happened recently, again, being a technical analyst and looking at the pricing, a year and a half ago, I think it was, where you had the Build Back Better bill pending in Congress and um, another bill pending as well, I think the infrastructure bill. What happened was the price of gold just um, started to drop about $200 per ounce. And I think that was Janet Yellen, you know, um, manipulating the market. The government in the short term can manipulate markets, but not in the long term. The market is bigger than the government. Um, so what happened? The bill passed. Gold got that $200 back. Then what happened this past summer? You had um, the, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act pending. So what happened? Gold again dropped. The, the slid down about $200 an ounce. The thing passed. Gold didn't go up just $200. It went up $300. And it's gone up a little more since then. And that's very telling. So when you're watching the price, you can see how, how price reacts. And, and it's much more positive even than it was a year and a half ago. So is that China and, and the other people buying? Potentially, yes. I mean, they know something. Um, they want to have you know more gold because they know what's going on in the world. The inflation is a World Economic Forum. Um, so you, right, JD, you're, you're right on as always. That's always, I wish that were true. You know, it's funny. Um, the last time I tried to give, I won't say give it. The last time I took my own financial advice, I was sitting there and Bitcoin had just gone up quite a bit. 
And I thought to myself, wow, you know what? This is it. This is it. I need to, to take all of my Bitcoins and sell them now before it drops. And of course, that well, I, I was brilliant, at least I thought at the time, when I sold my Bitcoin at $1,900. Um, <laughs> it went up to $60,000 at one point. But then, thankfully, I didn't go back and think, oh, it's going to go up to 100000 because if I bought at 60000 I would have lost a lot because now it's back down to like 24000 The point I'm trying to make is, is that we can't just try to you know, guess at what's happening with the economy. We have to go based on what's really, you know, the, what, what's knowledgeable, what's what makes sense. And this is why for the last year and a half, two years now, I have been very bullish about precious metals. It has nothing to do with, you know, pe- I was people were, were trying to get me to sell their precious metals since like 2017. I would get inquiries and requests for sponsorship every other week. Um, and it wasn't until, again, Till the economy started saying, hey, look into gold. That's when I started looking into it. That's when I met Ira Bershatsky over at OurGoldGuy.com, and, and the rest is history. So I do strongly, strongly recommend Ira and his services. Any final notes, Ira? Um, well, um, no. <laughs> I mean, you covered a lot, and I appreciate the, uh, the compliments, and uh, they're not misplaced uh, by any means. They're very, very well placed. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So, everybody, just go check him out. Go to OurGoldGuy.com, fill out a form, and talk to our Ira Vershatsky. Thank you, sir, for coming on with me today. Welcome. Thank you. Right now, a lot of people are very concerned about the future of the economy. Uh, what's what's happening? Not even next month. What's happening today? And so, there's been a lot of interest in precious metals. People ask me all the time, "Who do I recommend?" And I do recommend multiple companies, but I. It's funny. I didn't intend it this way, but I did find that the companies that I recommend some are you know, one is big, one is little, one is is right in between. The uh, I, I hate even saying the little company because they they do everything. It's a full service company. OurGoldGuy.com. This is the company where you're going to get personal service. Even though, again, whether you're transferring IRAs, getting precious metals physically sent to your door, you just want you know good strong consultation. If you have wealth or retirement that you want to protect with precious metals, you should contact Ira at OurGoldGuy.com. You will actually speak to the owner of the company, when you fill out a form there. So check it out, OurGoldGuy.com. Well, here we are. We're at the, the big existential threat, emerging existential threat, one that has actually been around for really over almost a year now. But the groundwork for it has been set in place for a long, long time, at the very least two decades. The groundwork has been being built. The foundation for this existential threat has been in play for a long time. And now we're finally starting to see those evil machinations coming to pass. And, of course, I'm talking about Ukraine and, more importantly, the the, uh, the increasing risk of a major war, perhaps a nuclear war, between NATO and Russia. Of course, if that were to be the case, we would very likely see a Russo-Sino relationship uh, grow beyond where it already is, a military relationship that would really pose a huge threat, <laughs> a very big threat to NATO and 
to the United States of America. We are very close to seeing this this conflict get higher. And before I talk about all that stuff, I want to turn it over to um, to Russell Brand. He did a segment on his show today that I thought really explained the incentive. You know, we 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 sit back and I see this happen all the time, especially in conservative media. It's like people ask why, you know, whether it's in the comments or even in the articles themselves, why would why would we be pushing so hard? Why is this happening? Why does common sense not not seem to to show up at all? Why are we getting so involved in this this regional conflict? And it's not just the money. It's not just the aid. It's the acceleration. I mean, there was a time not very long ago when even Joe Biden said that it would be crazy if he were to send offensive weapons to Ukraine because that would be the start of World War III, he said. Well, now we're sending offensive weapons to Ukraine. So does that mean that he's expecting World War III? Perhaps. Now, again, we ask why would they be doing this, and Russell Brand, in his very, very particular way of doing things, he he has what I believe are some answers, so pay pay close attention. Zelensky has read out a list of the corporate giants that will be charged with rebuilding, reconstructing, privatizing Ukraine. Having heard that list, is it finally safe for us to call this war what it is? A proxy war that is about destabilizing Russia and the privatization of Ukraine. Of course, also, Putin is evil. Putin is evil! Today, we are talking about Zelensky's list. Having already in 2022, by the way, rung that bell that opens the stock market. And if that's not a clear indication where your affiliations lie, then this list is. He lists like JP Morgan, BlackRock. It's essentially the Avengers of big globalist corporations who are now going to profit, unless we're still being told they're doing this for humanitarian reasons, in the reconstruction of Ukraine. Now that we've heard this list, now that we've seen Zelensky turn up at the Golden Globes and other propagandist events, is it okay for us to say that this war is about more than helping Ukrainian people? confront evil tyranny in the form of Putin. Let me know in the chat. Let me know in the comments. Let's have a look at Zelensky's list of heroes. It is obvious that American business can become the locomotive that will once again push forward global economic growth. Often there are conditions that the globalist establishment requires before doing the types of deals that Zelensky describes. You will have seen our previous videos in which we talk about the IMF and the World Bank and the kind of leverage that they require in order to give what they call loans, but seem essentially like opportunities to take control of new territories and economies. And this is no different. You'll be astonished to learn that there are strong anti-union laws being implemented in Ukraine to assure that the conditions for massive profit can be created. So it looks like what's happening now is essentially Ukraine is being made a NATO member and it's being colonized, i.e. opportunities for growth, for profit are being created. Now, how can you use taxpayer money to generate these conditions? Well, I suppose only if you were to say that Putin is like a shitting himself Hitler and we're only doing this to help people. Oh yeah, under these conditions, I suppose you could. What I believe this war offers us the opportunity to do is recognize how reductive our media have become. Part of the formula these days is to present a situation as humanitarian or a crisis that needs a necessary resolution, then in effect, powerful elite interests benefit from it. Have that formula in your mind and then we can use it together to critique situations as they unfold. We have already managed 
to attract attention and have cooperation with such giants of the international financial and investment world as BlackRock, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. These are not unequivocal forces for good. JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and BlackRock are not charities. They're not philanthropic organizations. Even philanthropic organizations aren't that philanthropic. Who's next in there? The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. While the United States and Europe flood Ukraine with tens of billions of dollars of weapons, using it as an anti-Russian proxy and pouring fuel on the fire of a brutal war that is devastating the country, they are also making plans to essentially plunder its post-war economy. These are evocative words, but this is the kind of evocative language that's required to balance the vanilla narrative we're continually fed. We're continually told, you know, help Ukraine, help Ukrainian people. And of course, the reason you're told that is because that is the right thing to do. But I don't believe that that's what's happening. Do you? Let me know in the chat. Let me know in the comments. Representatives of Western governments and corporations met in Switzerland last July to plan a series of harsh neoliberal policies to impose on post-war Ukraine, calling to cut labour laws, open markets, drop tariffs, deregulate industries and sell state-owned enterprises to private investors. That is a formula for corporatization. That's what's being offered here. If you're familiar with the term neoliberalism, then you will know that this is what's happened in Western democracies in the previous 20 or 30 years. Asset stripping, finding publicly owned assets, selling it off to private organisations when these assets were built using public money. That's a fantastic way to make profit. Of course, what we're seeing now in countries like ours and probably yours, if you're American, is that there is a devastating impact on the economy that we live in. This causes housing crisis. This causes a loss of jobs. Ultimately, it could be argued that the same way that you had people like Gaddafi in Libya and Saddam Hussein in Iraq, leaders in countries that had to be destabilized and leaders that had to later be deposed, this is a comparable modality. Going to a country, claim that we're sort of helping out, paint a very vivid and lurid picture of tyranny and humanitarian disasters. And who do you bring in? Is it the Red Cross? No, it's BlackRock. Ultimately, what they're talking about as well is political purchase and political control in Ukraine. Ukraine are going to set up laws that mean that ultimately unions can't form, that wages are controlled. This kind of stuff comes at a cost. Ukraine has been destabilized by violence since 2014 when a US-sponsored coup d'etat overthrew its democratically elected government, setting off a civil war. That conflict dragged on till February the 24th, 2022, when Russia invaded the country, escalating into a new, even deadlier phase of the war. So it's essentially saying that the war began a lot earlier. In fact, when Jeffrey Sachs came on our show, he said that this war is eight years in the making. Even the framing of the duration of the war is a mainstream media construction. This geopolitical situation is comparable to the pandemic. We're only being shown a tiny, tiny slice of the information because if we were to have access to the entire picture, we'd say, hey, hold on a minute. Aren't there different ways to approach this? Aren't there different solutions that are available? And isn't it possible that in your pursuit of your own corporate globalist goals, you could take us to the brink of Armageddon? If you have awakened investigative citizens saying, forget left and right, forget everything else, just tell me the information so I can determine for myself and for my family and for my community what I believe 
achieve his best. They can't allow that. That's why we're continually turned against one another. That's why we're continually fed puerile, ridiculous narratives that fit only for children. Washington had sent large sums of weapons to Ukraine and provided extensive military training and support over several years before Russia invaded. Meanwhile, starting in 2017, representatives of Western governments and corporations quietly held annual conferences in which they discussed ways to profit from the civil war they were fueling in Ukraine. In these meetings, Western political and business leaders outlined a series of aggressive reforms they hoped to impose on Ukraine, including widespread privatisation of state-owned industries and deregulation of the economy. On July 4th and 5th, 2022, top officials from the US, EU, Britain, Japan and South Korea met in Switzerland for a so-called Ukraine Recovery Conference. There, they planned Ukraine's post-war reconstruction and performatively announced aid commitments. Let's hold a Ukraine Recovery Conference. What are we recovering? We are recovering Ukraine from Ukrainian people. And everyone can become a big business by working with Ukraine in all sectors from weapons and defense. Yeah, weapons and defense. Good. That's definitely happening. To construction from communication to agriculture. Yep, all of them, all of the global elite interests can benefit from this war. At the beginning, it was like, well, how could there be anything other than just Russia's egregious criminal invasion, Putin's evil tyranny? Oh, look, by some weird coincidence, all of the world's most powerful interests are going to benefit. It's a bit like the pandemic, really, when by helping us all to get better, some of the world's most powerful interests benefit. It's weird how this keeps happening. From transport to IT, from banks to medicine. Banks and medicine, same players again and again. And I believe that freedom must always win. Gotta have freedom, gotta have freedom. Freedom to make a great deal of money out of human suffering. The Ukraine Recovery Conference was not new. It had been renamed to save the expense of a new acronym. In the previous five years, the group and its annual meetings were instead referred to as the Ukraine Reform Conference. The URC's agenda was explicitly focused on imposing political changes on the country, namely strengthening the market economy, decentralisation, privatisation, reform of state-owned enterprises, land reform, state administration reform and Euro-Atlantic integration. That sounds a little bit like corporatise it, privatise it, get it in NATO. Before 2022, this gathering had nothing to do with aid and a lot to do with economics. It's a shame that this is all to do with economics. If only there was some war or humanitarian angle that would really bolster our efforts. Just uh, wait there one second. Putin, you son of a bitch! So what they're calling the Ukraine Recovery Conference is starting to sound like a convention for corporate interests and profiteering opportunity. Documents from the 2018 Ukraine Reform Conference emphasised the importance of privatising most of Ukraine's remaining public sector, stating that the ultimate goal of the reform is to sell state-owned enterprises to private investors. There you go, explicit. Along with calls for more privatisation, deregulation, energy reform, tax and customs reform. Just in case you think that you've turned into a conspiracy theorist and are believing things for which there's no legitimate basis, here are some world leaders and political players and leaders on the corporate stage openly stating that they are going to benefit from reconstruction Constructing Ukraine. Well, I can tell you that the, the UK will be sticking by Ukraine for as long as it takes. And we will be there for, for the long term. And we will also want to be helping you to reconstruct. Reconstruct? That's the reconstructing. And here we are taking the money out of Ukraine. Here's Ursula von der Leyen explaining to the assembled leaders and corporatists and big tech giants at Davos 
that they are required to rebuild Ukraine. You might think, I've heard that name, Ursula von der Leyen, before. Yeah, you have. It's when Albert Baller was texting her directly, doing deals for billions of vaccines, coincidentally, that didn't pass by a council of approval. We raise the necessary investment for reconstruction, and it is a perfect opportunity to take investment and reform to pave this way for Ukraine towards the European Union. And what we need is not only investment with the public sector, but the private investment and your knowledge. Got to have that. Got to have private investment and, of course, knowledge as well. You know so much in your respective fields. So we need your knowledge. We need need every hand on board to really move forward with repair, relief at the very beginning, but also reconstruction. Got to reconstruct it. The people of Ukraine really deserve it. So there you go. There you see everything tying the morality, the necessary duty we have to help one another, to help the suffering Ukrainian people with the interests of the establishment elite. As long as you can converge those two ideas, then dissent becomes criminal. People will say that I'm a crackpot conspiracy theorist for saying it and you're a nutcase for believing it. But they're admitting BlackRock, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs are going to benefit from the reconstruction of Ukraine. If something is truly humanitarian, here's a good way of demonstrating it. Extract the profit from it altogether. If not, don't pretend it's humanitarian. Just go, listen, this is the agenda. Ukraine was ultimately a place that was too resource-rich and had too strong a ties with Russia, historically, politically, and even ethnically in some cases. We're not having it. We're going in there. We're destabilizing it. We're going to provoke Russia until they engage militarily. Then we're going to go in there and corporatize it. Why wouldn't they say that? That's not a very popular story, is it? In September 2022, Zelensky symbolically rang the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange via video stream. The Ukrainian leader declared that his country was open for business with more than $400 billion in investment options. At the same time, Zelensky published an editorial in the Wall Street Journal calling on Western corporations to invest in the future of Ukraine. One way of looking at the framing of Zelensky is that he is indeed a heroic leader who is galvanizing a nation that is suffering under the military attack of a more powerful aggressor that is important and worthy of praise. Another way of looking at Zelensky is that his interests align with the interests of the most powerful economic institutions in the world. Some of the most powerful corporations and most powerful nations, their agenda and Zelensky's agenda temporarily line up, like Gaddafi's agenda once did, like Saddam Hussein's agenda once did. I hope for Zelensky's sake that the agenda stays in alignment because I don't know what's happened to Gaddafi, but I feel like he ended up with a bit of a jostly jeep ride and Saddam Hussein, goodbye. The Ukrainian government cited corporate executives at Google, Alphabet and Microsoft who urged more Western companies to buy up the country's assets. And there it is, it's just literally there in plain sight. In December 2022, Zelensky held a video conference with billionaire Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager. Zelensky's office said that BlackRock will advise the Ukrainian government on how to structure the country's reconstruction funds and is coordinating the efforts of all potential investors and participants in the reconstruction of our country. This means that under Western tutelage, Ukraine has essentially privatised and outsourced its economic policy to BlackRock, one of the world's most powerful corporations. Often we show you charts of how the most powerful economic entities in the world are no longer nations, they are corporations. Other than a few, and you know their names, the most powerful nations in the world, the most powerful and influential entities on our planet are corporate. And here we can see how they've been charged with creating in the economic policy of an entire nation. Right now, the world's attention is on Ukraine.
Ukraine, and Ukraine's future policies are going to be determined by BlackRock's interest. That's obvious. It sounds like an outrageous thing to say, but of course, BlackRock and JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, they're not going to investigate. So, sorry, guys, you know that thing we did to help everyone in Ukraine? Yeah, it wasn't profitable. We've lost loads of money for everybody. But the good news is we really, really helped Ukraine. Hello? Hello, humanitarian. Hello? Hello! During a recent WEF session in Davos, Larry Fink spoke of his plans to help coordinate billions of dollars worth of reconstruction financing for Ukraine, saying he hoped the initiative would also turn the country into a beacon of capitalism. <laughs> oh my God, it's very explicit. This is not conspiracy theory. The very fact that they're saying in this public way, I don't even know what the counter-argument to this is, actually. I don't know what they say. Well, Russell, of course, after a war, it's going to need reconstruction, and you're going to want the most powerful interest in the world. All right, yeah, I get that. I get what the world is. But that's essentially our argument, is would you include in your media narratives the fact that the most powerful interests in the world are going to benefit from this and stop giving us these reductive, simplistic tales of good versus evil, which could in fact lead us to an apocalyptic conflict, because that's unreasonable and unfair, and most importantly, untrue. Give us the truth and stop creating narratives that only benefit elites when they could in fact be detrimental, not only to all of you watching this, but the Ukrainian people themselves. They're going to find it difficult to work. They've had a war that could have been stopped early. What I object to, I think, is the lying. David Solomon, CEO of Goldman Sachs, spoke cheerily of Ukraine's post-war future. There is no question that as you rebuild, there will be good economic incentives for real return and real investment, he said. In one way, I'm almost tempted to just go along with it and invest in it. Zelensky's government has imposed some of the world's most aggressive anti-worker policies. So if you love Ukraine, which obviously he does, I'm not saying that Zelensky doesn't love Ukraine, but aggressive anti-worker policies, passing legislation that deprives around 70 73% of workers for their right to union protection and collective bargaining. How's that good for Ukrainian people? Oh, how it's good is you can now do deals with Goldman Sachs and Ukraine and they won't do those deals if you're like, hey, obviously though, as leader of Ukraine, I've got to make sure that Ukrainian people, they're the people that should benefit. After all, they're the ones who had their children killed and suffered from all the bombing and the turmoil. Oh no, you know, you know who's really suffered from this? JP Morgan. JP Morgan for this company. Oh God, help me man, when's this war gonna end? This is all just bullshit. <laughs> We're dealing with a monumental amount of bullshit and are meant to sort of say thank you while we eat it as if it's chocolate cake. In an interview with Multipolarista, economist Michael Hudson compared the new emergency anti-labour laws imposed by the Ukrainian government to the brutal neoliberal policies implemented by Chile's far-right Pinochet dictatorship after a CIA-backed coup in 1973. In Chile, there was a democratically elected government. That government was destabilised and a military dictatorship was installed on the condition that afterwards a bunch of money would be made by all of these corporate interests as long as you set up favourable conditions for anti-labour unions, privatisation and all that. So this doesn't, on one level, seem that different from the kind of stuff that we've known that America, through the CIA, have done for years and years. It's just now that somehow it's become harder to track. It used to be like almost our duty to be anti-war. When did all this change? When did it change? How is it changing? What's going on? And as Mr Zelensky said, it may be the end of affluence for the labour force, but it's going to be a bonanza for you investors in the New York Stock Exchange. That doesn't seem like a very good war. The labour force means Ukrainians. Ukrainians have exchanged their liberties and opportunity for affluence with opportunities for the New York Stock Exchange. 
That's what this war has achieved. Somebody's loss is turned into somebody else's game. Ukraine is the poorest country in Europe, but it'll also be the richest country in Europe for the 1%, Hudson concluded. Well, there you go. I don't know how much more explicitly it needs to be stated. I think we're entering into a bizarre new age where global events are presented to us in a way that kind of doesn't give you the right to question the moral authority of what's happening, whether it's the response to a pandemic or the response to a war. They use our collective beliefs, so clearly there is some sort of universal sense that we should be helping one another and that war is bad and we should be protecting people that are suffering. They somehow managed to manipulate that into opportunities for profit for, you know, according to this, the 1%, the elites. So what do I think we should be doing? I think we should be campaigning for an end to this war. I think that we should be campaigning for diplomatic solutions, for peace for the Ukrainian people, for an end to the hysteria around this subject, for a media that tells us the truth and that every time there's a crisis, it doesn't get turned into an opportunity for the most powerful interest in the world to profit from it. But that's just why I think. Let me know what you think in the comments and the chat. I'll see you in a second. So let's be honest. The vast majority of long-term storage survival food, prepper food, is just awful. I mean, it just tastes tastes really, really bad. And uh, that's why they expect us to, to eat during the the apocalypse. Well, if the crap hits the fan, I'm going to actually be eating good food. I go to lateprepper.com, a website that I built based upon two partnerships, the two companies that produce actually really good food. No need to set up a bulk discount. Doesn't matter whether you buy one or 10. There's no, no hidden fees here. As a matter of fact, we charge the same price that the, the source companies charge. The difference is we actually have exclusive discounts. Use promo code PREP2023 for 10% off. Or for the you big spenders, use code PREP2030 for 15% off on orders of $777 or more. Go to lateprepper.com and eat well for the apocalypse. Yeah, you know, I actually didn't intend to play the entire Russell Brand clip during that last segment, um, but it was just so enthralling. I just kept going, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're coming up on a break. Might as well go all the way, and then it ended up going even longer than the regular segment. So this segment's going to be a little bit shorter, but that's fine. We are going to wrap it up. So yes, I do believe that the potential conflict with Russia, and it's not just nuclear war. There are a dozen other conflicts we need to consider potential conflicts and it's not just with russia either it's it also includes the very high likelihood of the chinese communist party of china getting involved in any type of conflict that nato and or the united states has with russia this is the threat folks this is emerging this is one that i wouldn't have expected the reason i call it emerging by the way even though obviously it's been a possibility for for nearly a year now the reason i consider it to be emerging is because the sentiment has changed. The, the the goals seem to have changed. Lest we forget, last year, not very many, not very long ago, I think it was like five or six months ago, Joe Biden, when asked about sending you know, offensive weapons to Ukraine, he said, "Oh, you know, that would be crazy." Based, I'm paraphrasing. He said, "That'd be, you know, why would we do that? That'd be crazy. That'd be the start of we send tanks over there. That'd be the start of World War III." Well, guess what? We're sending tanks. Now you've got Vladimir Zelensky out there doing his thing saying oh you know we we need nukes you you guys should just nuke russia if if not they're going to nuke us 
you know, and Russia shouldn't be allowed to nuke us or anybody else, but you guys should nuke them. It's the craziest thing. But he's echoing the sentiment. There's they're they're ramping up. This makes no sense whatsoever for them to be ramping up. I'm not just talk, talking about Lindsey Graham. I'm not just talking about our politicians. It's as if we're sitting here as a relatively sane people, the, the few of us that there are still in the world, but we're sitting here thinking, what are you guys doing? What are you talking about? Why would you be considering this at all? Why are we involved at all? This is a regional conflict. There are regional conflicts somewhere in the world that are at the same basic degree as what's happening in Ukraine. There are at least one or two or three of them every decade. What makes this one different? What makes this one so special that we have to get involved to the tune of over $100 billion? Don't forget, this was not too long ago. Okay, we're talking what, what, like eight, eight, <laughs> like, like, uh, Four years ago, when when Congress, Democrats, and even many Republicans were balking at the idea of spending $3.5 billion to get the wall built at our southern border, and all of a sudden they're willing to spend $100 million, they're not helping the Ukrainian people. They're not. This is hurting the Ukrainian people. This is assisting Vladimir Zelensky. This is assisting the corrupt government of Ukraine. This is assisting the machinations of the globalist elite cabal, the, the liberal world order, the powers and principalities, they're pushing for this. And I I hate to say it, if you had asked me this time last year, you know, is this going to accelerate, maybe not this time, if you had asked me two months ago, is this going to accelerate to the point that we're really legitimately talking about the potential for a a full-blown war with Russia between Russia and NATO? I would have said ah, maybe a 10% chance. I would have thought at some point cooler heads would prevail. I was wrong. It seems as if there are no cooler heads, and now we understand why. You know, maybe I was naive to think that that they wanted to just push to the edge. Because it seems like they've already gone beyond the edge. And now they're just waiting for the fall. And I'm not talking about the season here. They're waiting for us as a nation, us as a world, to fall in line. It's as if, I don't know. It's as if, call me crazy, but it's as if they actually do want war. Now, you might say that that's clear, and you might say that they, they want war, but just not nuclear war. They want global instability. They want the end of Western dominance. They want all these things. You can make that argument. But now we're at that point where we might actually end up in a nuclear war based upon what? The military-industrial complex, the deep state, and the the uh, liberal world order getting together and saying, "Hey, Russia's never going to, you know, they're not going to take it all away. We could push them as far as we want, and we'll just continue the instability, and we'll continue to to launder money and and weapons through Ukraine. It's going to be great, and then we'll have to rebuild, and we're going to make a lot of money from that, and we're going to do all all these other wonderful things. It's going to be fantastic. You guys are going to love it. Oops, whoa." Well, what do you mean? What do you mean they, they want to start a nuclear war? What do you mean that there's there's bombers? We weren't expecting that. We were told by our consultants that Russia wouldn't go that far. And let's not forget that it's even possible, as unlikely as it may seem, especially to those who are patriotic you know, and, and love America, it is possible. Maybe Zelensky's not wrong. Maybe, well, he's always wrong, but maybe he's not, he's uh, his... His uh, requests 
are actually being entertained. Maybe that was the point of him making the request in the first place. What if, call me crazy, but what if these powers and principalities are actually trying to get the United States and or NATO to launch nuclear weapons against Ukraine? That one I'll still put, I'm Ukraine, <laughs> Freudian slip, <laughs> nuclear, they are trying to destroy Ukraine, but just in different ways. Now, what if what if they were to, to try to launch nuclear weapons or, or get a nuclear bomb of some sort into Russia to try to dissuade them, to try to pressure them? It's I, I hate to say it's possible. My gosh, it does seem to be possible. Be- and only because nothing seems off the table at this stage. It seems as if whatever you thought was crazy and impossible before, from a geopolitical perspective, all those rules, you know, toss them out the window. Nothing makes sense. We're in the upside-down world of what could be the globalist elite cabal's endgame. What if this is what they have planned? I keep throwing out what-ifs. There's an article over at over at LewRockwell.com. It was written by Jacob Hornberger. I want to read part of it, just a, just a part of it. Because, you know, unfortunately, this is the bad part, unfortunately, this article is, it would almost, if you if you don't read it in the right context, you might think that this is actually propaganda for Russia. And maybe it is, but they do make some good points, so I want to read parts of it. And, you know, my caveat, as always, I do not support Russia. I do not defend Vladimir Putin. I do not think that they're there trying to save the world, trying to... to Fight the Nazis. I think that they that they do have self serving interests, and those self serving interests, in many ways, align with a lot of the people in Ukraine. So I will acknowledge that. I just I hope that we don't try to turn this into oh, you know, Russia's the victim. That's not what I'm saying here. And now that I'm saying it, that's it's kind of implied a bit in this article. Let me just read parts instead of so many caveats. President Kennedy had a unique ability, and it's titled "Understanding the Pentagon's Provocation." of Russia by Jacob G. Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation. We're finding it over at lewrockwell.com. President Kennedy had a unique ability that Pentagon generals did not have. He was able to analyze an international crisis by placing himself in the shoes of his adversary in an attempt to understand his adversary's motives. During Doing that enabled him to figure a way out of the crisis that did not involve war. The response of the generals and the Pentagon was always the same. Invade, bomb, kill, and destroy. Today's generals are no different from their counterparts back in the early 1960s. Now, before we go any further, let me stop right there. To be clear, I do disagree with that when they say that today's generals are no different because today's generals really like the LGBTQIA plus supremacy agenda. They're super ultra woke, and they really like to have transgenders in their military for whatever reason. So there's that. But as far as the warmongering aspect of it, I do totally agree. Back to the article. They're unable to keep into uh, to step into the shoes of Russian officials and try to figure out a resolution of the crisis in Ukraine. Instead, their answer is bombs, missiles, death, destruction, and now tanks. They are simply not mentally equipped to do what Kennedy did. Understanding how Kennedy resolved the Cuban Missile Crisis goes a long way toward understanding what motivated the Russians to invade Ukraine. In 1962, Kennedy learned that the Soviet Union was installing nuclear missiles in Cuba. With the full support of the Pentagon, Kennedy decided that he could not let that happen. There was no way that U.S. officials were going to permit the Russians to install nuclear missiles pointed at the United States 
from only 90 miles away. And yet, the Soviets had every right in the world to install nuclear missiles in Cuba, so long as it was done with the consent of the Cuban regime. After all, even though the Pentagon and the CIA considered Cuba to be a de facto U.S. colony, Cuba was, in fact, an independent sovereign country. If it wanted Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba, it had the right to invite the Soviets to install them there. Nevertheless, both Kennedy and the Pentagon decided they would not permit Russia's nuclear missiles to remain in Cuba. Why? Because they simply did not want nuclear missiles pointed at the U.S. from only 90 miles away. They considered such missiles to a gray, to be, I'm sure the missed word there, to be a grave threat to U.S. national security. Reflecting how important this principle was to Kennedy, he was even willing to go to nuclear war against Russia to prevent those Russian missiles from being stationed in Cuba. In fact, what is now widely recognized is that uh, Kennedy actually did initiate war against the Soviets. That was when he ordered a military blockade against Soviet ships carrying nuclear weapons to Cuba. Under international law, blockade is an act of war. Fortunately, the Soviets did not respond with retaliatory war measures. Yet Kennedy's blockade was met with severe disapproval of the generals. It was considered to be too weak. One member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff compared Kennedy's blockade to British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's appeasement of Hitler at Munich. With their one-track mind, the generals were pressuring Kennedy to bomb and invade Cuba. The, their insistence on pressuring Kennedy to take an action that would almost certainly result in nuclear war reflected how strongly they felt about not having Russian missiles so close to America's border. Thus, if Kennedy were president today, and this is where we're starting to get into the, the meat of it, thus, if Kennedy were president today, he wouldn't need to ask why the Russians felt the same way about having U.S. nuclear missiles stationed in Ukraine, which shares a border with Russia. He would understand that their sentiment would be no different from the sentiment sentiments of, of Kennedy and the Pentagon with respect to Russian nuclear missiles in Cuba. But there was another factor that Kennedy considered when he stepped into the shoes of the Russians in an attempt to understand the crisis and arrive at a mutually agreeable, peaceful resolution of it. Ever since Kennedy became president, both the CIA and the Pentagon were hell-bent on achieving regime change in Cuba. That's what the CIA's invasion of Cuba's Bay of Pigs in 1961 was all about. After it failed, the Pentagon began incessantly pressuring Kennedy to initiate a full-scale military invasion of the island. The Pentagon even came up with a fraudulent false flag operation named Operation Northwoods to provide Kennedy with an excuse to invade Cuba. To this everlasting credit, to his everlasting credit, Kennedy rejected it. Kennedy figured out that the reason the Cubans wanted those nuclear missiles or weapons was to deter the Pentagon and the CIA from invading Cuba again. If the deterrence failed, Cuban officials wanted the nuclear weapons as a way to fight back against a vastly more powerful army. What mainstream journalists and commentators fail to realize is that in the long state of hostilities between the United States and Cuba, it has always been the United States, specifically the Pentagon and the CIA, that has been the aggressor. Given such, Cuba had every right in the world to defend itself from Martin Luther King, from what Martin Luther King described as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. When Kennedy came to the realization that it was the obsessive quest of the Pentagon and the CIA to invade Cuba that had provoked the Cuban Missile Crisis, he figured a way out of the crisis. He simply promised Soviet leader 
uh, Nikita Khrushchev that he would never permit the Pentagon and the CIA to bomb or invade Cuba again. His promise worked. The Soviets removed their nuclear missiles from Cuba and took them home. Except for one thing. At the last minute, Khrushchev asked Kennedy to remove U.S. nuclear missiles from Turkey that were pointed at the Soviet Union. Yes, you read that right. While it was opposing Soviet missiles in Cuba that were pointed at the United States, the Pentagon had its nuclear missiles in Turkey that were pointed at Russia. Kennedy understood Khrushchev's point, and he agreed with it. He promised the Russian leader that he would remove the nuclear missiles in Turkey within six months. Needless to say, most Americans were relieved and pleased with Kennedy's resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Not so, however, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They were livid. Kennedy had effectively left Cuba permanently in communist control, something the Pentagon considered to be a grave threat to national security. As I point out in my book, An Encounter with uh, Evil, the Abraham Zupruder story, the the GCS considered Kennedy's resolution of the crisis to be the biggest defeat in U.S. history. They considered Kennedy to be a weak sister when it came to the uh, to confronting the communists. They considered him to be a coward, even worse, a traitor for making nice with Russia. You can see the parallels here. You can understand what Russia is thinking, and again, not defending them. But the fact that we keep pushing, knowing all this, tells us that this is an existential threat. Not just Americans, but to the world. Something has to be done about it. We need to. We need cooler minds to eventually prevail. Hopefully, that will come very soon. We're going to have to talk about this in the next episode because we have run out of time. Thanks to Russell Brand. Lord willing, I will be back very soon with that episode. But in the meantime, y'all stay strong, stay safe, and God bless.